Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke. Did you hear about the explosion at the cheese factory? Everywhere there was debris. <laughs> I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, an hour of culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. Except this week, we're an hour of food, food, and food, because it's our annual all-food show, a calorie-laden holiday feasting special comprised of our finest food-related stories. Which explains that cheesy joke from Julie Klausner, mm. star and creator of the Hulu series Difficult People. Coming up, restaurateur Eddie Huang, whose memoir inspired the ABC sitcom Fresh Off the Boat, tells us how to score the last donut in a box. Musician Connor Oberst tells us what song to pair with crab rolls. And star chef Gabrielle Hamilton explains why Triscuits have a place in one of the most acclaimed restaurants in New York. Plus, hip-hop star Questlove shares his favorite food song. And writer Megan Dom tells us why she hates food. <laughs> but first, to kick off the show, we thought we'd start with a story about what's become our stock and trade around here. Unusual food. That's right. And we had a lot of stories to choose from. Nashville hot chicken. Piedrasos. Baijo. Grass chili. Tiger nut. Dutch crunch. Nachos on a stick. Breakfast beer. Coffee plus butter. It was a mango pizza um, with the Kit Kat bars inserted inside. All fine choices. But ultimately, we couldn't stop thinking about one particular dish. War fries. War fries. Yes. This is something Rico encountered on a visit to Amsterdam in the Netherlands, where the locals slather all manner of stuff on their French fries, or as they call them, Flemish fries. Yes, named after the Flanders region of Belgium. So at a fry stand in Amsterdam called Vleminks, I met up with food writer Vicky Hampton, who's written about Dutch food for years. Before we got into war fries, I asked her to explain the etymology of Flemish fries. The name came about, or at least the rumor is that the name came about because the Americans, in fact, your countrymen, soldiers who were over in Europe during the First World War, they had these amazing chips, as I would call them, being a British person, and heard the language spoken by the people who were making them, and it was French, so they started calling them French fries. In fact, those people were Belgian, where they also speak French, and so they're actually Belgian fries. Oh, so the Dutch have it right. Yes. <laughs> So we're all idiots. That's what we've learned today. <laughs> Basically what I'm saying, yes. But I will say that when I think of, say, I get steak frites at a French restaurant, they're always thin, crispy fries. These are thicker. Yeah, these type of fries are much heartier. And I believe they're at least twice or maybe triple cooked. So that's why they're kind of fluffier in the middle and still crispier on the outside. Whereas French fries that like you get at McDonald's and stuff, the really thin ones that go cold all the time, we don't really eat them much here. How did they become so popular in specifically the Netherlands. I feel like this is one of the most fry-happy cultures I've ever seen. I'd take a guess that in the Netherlands, the Belgians have a reputation for being the bon viveurs. There's like a, an expression, bourgondish, sort of stands for like enjoyers of life. And so the people from Belgium and the south of the Netherlands are known for eating the good food, drinking the good wine, having a good time. That's probably why we love eating Belgian fries because we think that they're kind of the best, the most enjoyment you can get out of fries. The, the topping choices and varieties are insane. Take us through some of the ones that we might not know. I think most people know about mayo. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are kind of mayonnaise-based, sort of curry sauces that are quite mayonnaise-heavy. Um, there's peanut sauce, there's um, capsalon, which means hairdressers, and it's basically fries with the contents of a kebab dumped on top of it. So like shawarma meat. And then, well, they sometimes put sambal on top of them as well, which is a super spicy 
red pepper sauce comes from Indonesia, and it's commonly eaten with Indonesian food, which obviously we have a lot of here in the Netherlands. Now, it's not obvious to a whole lot of people that Indonesian food would go with the Netherlands, but it is super popular here. Yeah, it was a colony, yeah. And then there's been tons of Indonesian immigration to Holland since then. Tons of Indonesian restaurants in Amsterdam and around the Netherlands. It's kind of like, like as Indian food is to London, I would say, exactly. Indonesian yeah. food is to Amsterdam. Yeah, precisely. And then something called, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Orloch topping. Yeah, so Orloch literally means war. Apparently it's because it looks a huge mess. It's basically mayonnaise, peanut sauce, and chopped up raw onions. So it's quite a combination. And if you could see our fries now sitting in front of us, they do look like a huge battle of toppings. It's total carnage on top of these fries. It's like, it looks almost like a half and half cookie because you have the dark squirt of peanut sauce and then a squirt of white mayo next to it and then there's just onions all over the top of it. Where did this concept come from? So the peanut sauce, I believe, is also the Indonesian connection. So we'll have satay sauce with everything. I don't think even people really realize now that it's not natively Dutch, let's say. It's not peanut butter. It's more like, uh, it's more savory. The kind of thing you dip chicken in, in like a uh, Thai restaurant. Yeah, so precisely satay sauce. All right, and then the mayo, I guess, comes from because everybody loves mayo over here. Yeah, I mean, obviously France is close by and that influence just came from there over the years. And then the onion comes on top and I've noticed the Dutch love putting onions on everything including like you get a piece of herring that will be otherwise raw but you put onion on it. Why? The Dutch usually like quite big flavors I've noticed. It's not my favorite to be honest. Sometimes I ask for orloch without the onions because I find the raw tang a bit too much. Well I'm about to experience it regardless of what you think <laughs> for journalism. And I've got a piece. Oh, look, I picked up... sauce on there. Yeah, I picked up the perfect piece. It's got just the right amount of all of those three ingredients. And we'll see what happens when I put it in my mouth. Here we go. You know, it's not as insane as I thought it would be. The peanut part just adds a little bit of extra savoriness to the mayo part. They have similar consistencies, really, and it just adds a little bit. makes the mayo less bland, I find. When you have it, I mean, have, do you ever order it this way? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, usually it's three o'clock in the morning and not at five o'clock in the afternoon, but yeah, I do. <laughs> I guess this is, is this kind of drunk food in the Netherlands? Yeah, I mean, obviously the fries stand that we just went to, because it's one of the most famous ones in the city and it's really, really good. People go there at all times of the day. But for, I think, the majority of Amsterdamers who are working and living here, it's more of a late night drunk food, indeed. I, I have a feeling that may be where the Orlog topping came from. <laughs> Maybe. You know what? Just put some peanut sauce on. You know what? I also put some mayo on it. You know what? I also put some onion on that. <laughs> Just keep going. Just keep throwing it all on. And some cookies. <laughs> Vicky Hampton. She writes the Dutch food website Amsterdam Foodie. And Brendan, it seems only appropriate to wash down Amsterdam's drunk food with a drink. Right? Agreed. And we are at the right part of the show. This is where we tell you something that happened in history, then have a bartender capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. It is our famed history lesson with booze. First, the history part, and appropriately for this all-food show, it's about a sharp little invention that made eaters smile a little brighter. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Charles Forster made millions out of little pieces of wood. It was the mid-1800s, and Charles a Bostonite, was working for his uncle's company in Brazil, where he couldn't help but notice that the locals were really into using toothpicks. These weren't the splintery toothpicks folks had whittled for themselves back in the States. 
These were smooth, high-quality numbers, hand-carved and imported from Portugal. Charles's idea? Get a machine to mass-produce similar toothpicks and sell them cheaply around the world. Not being an engineer, Charles bought the patent rights to someone else's machine to do the job. It was designed by a guy in Boston to cut wood into pegs, which were used in making shoes. Charles and a mechanic friend adapted it to cut the pegs smaller and thinner, and voila, the first machine-made toothpicks. Only problem? Boston store owners didn't believe people would buy something they could just carve off a twig. So since there was no apparent demand for his product, Charles created some. He hired a team of kids to barge into stores and clamor for his toothpicks. Then later, Charles would stop by and find the owners more than willing to stock a few boxes. Charles did the same thing with restaurants, paying Harvard students to demand toothpicks after their meal. Eventually, chewing on a toothpick became a status symbol, implying you dined at a fancy eatery. And soon, Charles had to launch a mill in Maine to keep up with demand. It stayed in business for over a century. At its peak, it churned out over 15 million toothpicks a day. So that was the history. Now for a drink to serve with it. On the line is Naomi Levy. She is bar manager at Eastern Standard Kitchen in the city of Boston, where Charles Forster popularized his machine-made toothpicks. Naomi, you heard the history. What drink did that inspire you to make? So um, I was inspired to make a drink that we're calling Forster's Mills. His Mills. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a take on an old Boston classic called the Ward 8, made with rye whiskey, grenadine, lemon juice, and orange juice. Okay, so that's the Ward 8. And then you're going to change some of those ingredients for this drink? We are replacing a couple of these ingredients. So we're, instead of using rye as our base spirit, we're using something called cachaça. Ooh. Fun to say, right? It is. It sounds like <laughs> something you'd find in a tea room or something. What is that? So cachaça is uh, in the rum family. It's the national spirit of Brazil. Oh, so wow. if Charles had a drink down there while he was getting his inspiration, <laughs> that's probably what he was drinking. Um, the so nice thing is you don't have to use a toothpick to pick a booze out of your teeth. It just occurred to me. I hope not. Oh, that's my goodness. Nice. <laughs> you don't want a drink you need a toothpick afterwards for, but, you know. Well, Bloody Mary, maybe. After, maybe Bloody Mary, but after a nice meal, you know, there's nothing like a nice drink and a toothpick. There you go. You know? All right, so cachaça, and then what else? Yeah, you so um, cachaça, and then instead of grenadine, we made a port syrup. So port coming from Portugal, oh, yeah. um, which is also where Brazil got toothpicks from, and just mixing that with equal parts of sugar to make a syrup oh. to add a little more richness to the drink. Does it have a garnish? It does not have a garnish. How can so, you not have a garnish with a toothpick in well, it? Well, I know, I know. <laughs> because when you pour it out, the port and the orange juice creates a foam on the top. And it's just so pretty. We didn't want to interrupt that with anything else. Okay, but I'm just going to urge people when they make this at home to, I don't know, put something yeah. in there. Well, I think you could just, you know, give it a little swirl with the toothpick, and then actually your toothpick will taste so good. That's acceptable. Naomi Levy of Eastern Standard in Boston. You can find that recipe at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, we've noshed, we've sipped some cocktails. I think this food extravaganza could use some music, yes? Yes, and for that, we turn to singer-songwriter Connor Oberst. 20 years back, he formed the band Bright Eyes. 
Since then, his sharp lyrics, quavering voice, and blend of indie folk and punk have amassed him a devoted following. He's also released five solo albums. Mm. Here he is with the Dinner Party playlist and a few menu suggestions. Hi, I'm Connor Oberst, and I'm very excited about my dinner party tonight, and I'm starving. Without further ado, here is my calorie-laden dinner party soundtrack. And the first track, as the guests are arriving, is by a band called The So-So Glows with Island Riding. Another summer for the city And on the 33 bus downtown You said I'm getting hot you I wanted to get the guests pumped up at this party, so... We're going to start on an upbeat note while the finger foods are getting passed around. Maybe some people even even dance, you know, with those crab rolls in their hands. I mean, I think of it as some kind of combo of the clash and strokes. They got something to say, you know. They're not afraid to, to convey ideas. Um, I've noticed with some current New York music, it, it has more to do with how much uh, reverb you can put on your voice. So no one will hear what you're saying and possibly be able to critique it. But this is good old fashioned punk rock. As all the guests are getting comfortable and relaxing, I think I will play one of my favorite Nina Simone songs. She didn't write it. It was written by Jerry Jeff Walker. But we're going to hear her beautiful, timeless version of Mr. Bojangles. I knew a man, Bojangles, and he danced for you. It's a beautiful song. Although the story itself, there might be a bit of melancholy. I think that since the first time I've heard this song, I've never been able to shake the power of it. He just up and died. After 20 years, he still agrees. She has the kind of voice that only comes along every few hundred years. Sometimes she doesn't sing perfectly in pitch, but it's an imperfection which is better than any perfection could be, you know? I don't think I have that going on with my voice, but mine is also not perfect, so I guess we share that. So at this point in the dinner, people are starting to get full, but it's so delicious they want to eat on. And uh, I decided to put on John Prine, and this is a song called Long Monday. You and me, sitting in the back of my memory Like a honeybee John Prine is a folk singer, I suppose, for lack of a better word, a poet, a songwriter, and another national treasure. Long Monday comes off an album called Fair and Square, which was a little later in his career. I think it was the early 2000s, after he had just beat back throat cancer, and so his his voice is a little lower and a little gravelier, but it works so well on this song. This is Mindy Smith's incredible harmony on this chorus. Gonna be a long Monday Stuck like the tick of a clock Let's come on well This song is a quiet, easily digestible song 
which will go down like a smooth shot of Fernet. I don't often play my own music at my own dinner parties, but I know it's a surefire way to clear a room and to get the guests on their way. So I decided to play my song hundreds of ways. What a thing to be a witness to the sunshine. What a dream to just be walking on the ground. Well, hundreds of ways are about all the possible paths we can walk down each day. You just have to decide on one. So as the guests leave, they have to choose their own path. Will they go home? Will they find an after party? Will they just drive until they run out of gasoline? It's up to them. Dinner Party Soundtrack, we taped a while back with Connor Oberst, the songs from his most recent solo album, Upside Down Mountain. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but coming up, author and restaurateur Eddie Huang answers your etiquette questions, and Brendan learns the secret truth about searing steak. When this all-food episode of the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and we're celebrating holiday feasting season with this, our annual all-food episode. Yeah. Coming up, cook and author J. Kenji Lopez-Alt says we're all boiling spaghetti incorrectly. Oh, no. And later, award-winning chef Dan Barber tells us to eat trash. In the nicest way possible. Yes. He does. But speaking of being nice... Let's take a few minutes to learn some table manners. Indeed. Each week, you send us your etiquette questions. And back in January, we posed them to Eddie Huang. He is the restaurateur behind New York's popular Asian bun shop, Bauhaus, and author of the best-selling memoir, Fresh Off the Boat, about growing up Taiwanese in 1990s Florida. That book has been turned into a hit sitcom on ABC. Eddie took on a plethora of our listeners' politeness problems, starting with this one. All right. Uh, here's something from Chris in Boston, Mass., and Chris, oh God. Chris, <laughs> hey, easy. Chris writes, where should you sit when you're on a date and the host or hostess puts you in one of those rounded corner booths? Mm. Mm. I guess that it's like, do you kind of cozy up? You know, I, I feel like you just cozy up, you know, like you got to take the initiative. If you're on a date, I, I think it's fine to take the initiative and make it personal. And that is which date it is, right? The first date, I think that's a tougher question. Though. But how could you not cozy up at a rounded corner booth? You could sit <laughs> uncomfortably on the sort of tips of the horseshoe, you know, if you're looking at the booth from above. That is not a date. I know, yeah. it's awkward. But that's like, there's no other thing that says I'm a wimp more than like, hey, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make sure I'm not offending you here. Yeah. You know? And 20... also, there are two people involved in this situation. If you sit too close, the per- other person can move she a can little move. bit to the side. You're fine. Yes. Don't, yeah. don't chase after the person. That, yeah. Don't don't slide around the booth. <laughs> no. If she moves, don't move again. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a one creepy. move thing. It's definitely, it's you make your move and that's it. Yeah. All right. It's a north-south right. move. <laughs> there you go. There you Chris. go, uh, Chris. Good luck with that. Uh, our next question comes from Gregorio in the Bronx. Gregorio writes... When I was working in a local bar as a cook, I would frequently see front of house staff eating the food left on a plate after the customer was done with it. Wow. Oh, that's so ratchet. Am I wrong in thinking that this is absolutely skeevy? Which, for those who don't know, you just said ratchet. Ratchet, like the tool, that's slang for skeevy, right? <laughs> yeah, it's so nasty. It's slang for skeevy. It's just... Well, but you ran a restaurant. You have to have seen something like that happen on occasion. Right? Oh, yeah. Dude, I've seen people bring salads back to the, to the kitchen and eat the croutons off it. And I was like, bro, the, you could get a new croutons. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I'm tempted too because you can see a dish that nobody's touched. Yeah. Um, 
as a chef or a cook, I will, if something's sent back and they complained about it, I will taste it because that's part of my job to make sure everything's okay. Otherwise, mm-hmm. just for pleasure, absolutely not. And the other, I guess, solution to this would be to actually feed the waiters so that they're not yeah. stealing people's food. Well, they usually have a staff meal beforehand. Apparently that doesn't yeah. happen at Gregorio's. I have a funny story, too, because we're next to a KFC, Bauhaus. And so, you know, we, we took away staff meal for a second because people were totally abusing it, just like eating five or six bowels a shift. And I was like, guys, guys, <laughs> come on. All right. We maybe sold three bowels a shift and you ate six. So... um there was a guy, he, he got, he in an act of defiance, I think, he went to KFC, bought a bucket of KFC, put it on the counter, and was just eating KFC while serving. And I was like, bro, we serve fried chicken here. And he's like, but you don't give it to me for free anymore. Oh, man. And so we had to come to a little bit of a compromise. All right. Yeah. Uh, so there you go, Gregorio. It is skeevy. You are correct. Here's something from Liz in New Haven, Connecticut. Is it okay, she writes, to ask for a fork? at an Asian restaurant where chopsticks are the norm. Look, I hate it, but it's fine. I have a lot of Chinese, Taiwanese, Korean, Cantonese friends. My friend Stephen Lau, who is the manager of Bauhaus, I'm going to put him on blast. Dude is the worst. (laughs) I've been friends with him for 10 years. This man, first question, he sits down at a Chinese restaurant. He's like, can I go to Fork? I'm like, you just stabbed the dumpling. All the juice came out. What are you doing? So it's so, but you're saying it's okay, even though it's you hate it, but it's okay. I'll, I'll judge you, but it's fine. There are things though, like a piece of sushi, where if you use a fork, you're adulterating it yeah, because sushi yeah. is all about mouthfeel and the cutting of it and the rice sure. staying together. Like you kind of need to use chopsticks or fingers, but these. Half my half my Asian friends in New York just stabbing things with forks. Well, let's have a caveat. Sushi with the fork, never okay. No. That's ridiculous. Right. Yeah. Um, this next question comes from Trevor in Scottsdale, Arizona. Trevor writes, does half of a donut in the box mean that someone has claimed it or that they only wanted half and the rest is up for grabs? <laughs> okay, so this is an easy one, right? If it's just a half a donut and it looks like somebody bit it, that's been claimed. Also, the person that put it back in is ratchet. Now, if, 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 <laughs> if there's a knife in the box and then the donut has been cut in half, then that's fair game. That's a half a donut left for you. Yeah, that's okay. right. It's like basically you have to, is it a jagged or a straight line yeah. cut? Yes, but I've always looked at these donuts that are half chewed. I'm like, who does this? Like, who throws a shoe and who puts a donut that's been bitten back in the box? <laughs> you can also do the yeah. move where you, if, if it does look like it's been bit into, where you take a knife and cut off that part though what about that i do that that's weird that's a lot of work i do that no i i like the the more environmentalist sustainable approach <laughs> yeah. to the second bite donut you know you have I to like that. consume it i i read something recently when there's one whole donut left and you want it but you want to be a respectful that it's the last donut you pick it up hold it up and say does anybody else want this donut <laughs> And but you're then, holding of course, it. You're holding it, so yep. you get to keep it. Yeah, it's yours. It's that's that's like when you kind of fake pull out your wallet to pay for something. Like, oh, you got this. You got this. Oh, okay, cool, man. That's the that's that move. All right, Eddie Huang. That is all the time we have. Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave or not to behave. All right, behave yourselves. Author and restaurateur Eddie Wong, his memoir, Fresh Off the Boat, is now a hit sitcom. It's in its second season on ABC. And folks, if someone's metaphorically left half a donut in the box called your life, email us about it and we'll find someone to advise you on the matter. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now, time to eavesdrop. 
Megan Dom is a novelist and a columnist for the LA Times. Today we overhear her read probably the last piece she ever expected to air on an all-food episode. This is Megan Dom. I'm going to be reading from my book, The Unspeakable and Other Subjects of Discussion. And this is from an essay called On Not Being a Foodie. I hate food. Not that I don't consume it. Like any decent American, I often consume too much of it. I just hate thinking about it. I hate shopping for it, preparing it, serving it, and cleaning it up and putting it away. Though I would take cleaning up over cooking any day. Cooking takes my chronic impatience, divides it by my inherent laziness, and multiplies it to the power of my deepest self-loathing that I have found myself in the prime of life, in an era of cronuts and artisanal pickles, is both sadly ironic and kind of sweetly perfect. One of the great pleasures of trends is the option of sitting them out. Being a non-foodie in a world of heirloom tomato ketchup and chanterelle mushroom omelets means saving time and money that could be spent elsewhere. For instance, on Heinz ketchup slathered on greasy diner omelets. It means it's not necessarily a tragedy if you die before making it to Italy. Not that it wouldn't be very sad. It means knowing your spouse didn't marry you for your cooking or your ability to pick restaurants. It means respecting food items that are too often denigrated and mocked. Miracle Whip. Butter-flavored margarine. Baking mixes of all kinds. My parents were not religious, but we did celebrate Christmas. And every Christmas morning, my mother served a marbled coffee cake that had somehow been dubbed Baby Jesus's Birthday Cake. But the recipe my mother worked from was in my grandmother's handwriting, where it was called Jewish Coffee Cake. My grandmother, who probably knew fewer than five Jews, must have seen it as an exotic delicacy. Later, I worked from a recipe my mother had written out for me. I can't give it away but I can tell you that it calls for white cake mix, vanilla instant pudding, and a carton of sour cream, among other ingredients available not just at your local supermarket, but probably also at your local 7-Eleven. I can also tell you that everyone I have ever made it for has said it's the best coffee cake they've ever tasted. And they're right. It's really the best thing in the world. Writer Megan Dom reading from her essay collection, The Unspeakable and Other Subjects of Discussion. It won a Penn Award for Creative Nonfiction. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. All right, and now to cleanse the palate, let's hear from someone who really, really likes to cook. That's right. For a change. Yes, Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt is the managing culinary director of the food blog Serious Eats. He also writes the James Beard Award-nominated column The Food Lab, and he recently put out a book called The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science. It's a thousand-page treatise examining just about every food on Earth and how most people are cooking them wrong. When we met, I asked him to tell me his science nerd bona fides. Chief among my qualifications are that from the age of uh, maybe four to ten years old, I woke up every morning at 6 a.m. to watch Mr. Wizard on TV. Yeah. I literally learned every scientific concept from him. Well, other nerd things you mentioned in the book are, you know, when you were stuck writing this book, you would look to Monty Python or science fiction (laughs) to get inspired to keep going. Yeah. My humor tends to the nerdy, I think. So that's the funny part about being a nerd. But, you know, you, you also mean nerd. You take a scientific approach to things. At one point, 
You call cooking, quote, a scientific engineering problem in which the inputs are raw ingredients and technique and the outputs are deliciously edible results. Yeah. I worked in biology labs for um, a number of years when I was in high school and in college. And, you know, the work that I do in the kitchen is not all that different from the work you do in a biology lab. You know, you start with a bunch of ingredients, you, you perform a certain set of processes on them, and then you end up with a result. You know, the difference is that cooking is, A, generally much faster and, B, a lot better tasting. <laughs> than lab rats? Yes. Than, <laughs> or gel electrophoresis plates, you know, things like that. At another point, you talk about, you know, one of the problems with cooking is that people view it as a craft, not a practice. But I, I have mm -hmm. to admit, I bristled a little bit because part of the reason I love the kitchen is because it's not precise. It's a little bit of this, a pinch of that. Have you gotten that reaction from other folks that you're maybe ruining the magic by really distilling <laughs> things down to these scientific principles? I do get that. And I've cooked that same way myself. But understanding the basic techniques and scientific background of cooking, um, that actually helps you to improvise more. Mm. By understanding things, it sort of frees you from having to follow recipes. So one of the things you do is kind of give people the basic principles. You also end up correcting some misperceptions. Mm -hmm. One of them uh, embodied in the story of Harold McGee. A great food writer. Um, he wrote On Food and Cooking, which is sort of the food science Bible. The thing you're mentioning is the idea that searing uh, meat seals in juices, which is something that was proposed, I think, in the 19th or 18th century, um, and it was believed for a long time, but since then it's been debunked, including by Harold McGee about 20 years ago. But for some reason, it's one of those things that still seems to stick in people's heads. And you see chefs say it all the time, you see people on TV say it all the time, that uh, searing meat will seal in the juices. And for people who don't know, so when you say searing, you just mean getting a raw steak, and the idea was that you, and I, I heard this growing up too, mm -hmm. you cook it quickly on both sides, and then you start to cook it for a longer period of time, and the idea is it would keep the moisture inside the piece of meat. Exactly. Yeah. I think the idea is that you would sort of cauterize the surfaces so that the moisture inside the meat can't escape. Yeah. But it's pretty easy to disprove, actually. You take two identical steaks, one of them cooked the traditional way, so sear it really hard in a skillet and then transfer it to an oven to finish cooking a little more gently. The second steak, do the reverse process. Start it in the oven and then finish it by searing it. Um, and you'll find that the one that you sear at the end uh, actually uh, retains more moisture and comes out more tender than the one that you did the traditional way. I think your most popular thing you kind of corrected people on was eggs. Can you tell us your hard-boiled egg method? The number one question I had when I was doing hard-boiled eggs was what makes the peel stick to the eggs sometimes? You know, sometimes you peel it and it comes off in one piece. Sometimes you peel it and it creates, you know, it sticks and, and the white egg white is fused to the shell. Mm -hmm. um, for me, that's a big issue, um, particularly because I used to have to make deviled eggs all the time uh, in a restaurant I worked at, and mm -hmm. I would always end up at least doubling the number of eggs I cooked knowing that a bunch of them were going to end up ugly. Um, yes. <clears throat> we, we ate a lot of they... egg salad for a family meal those days. <laughs> but um, yeah. what I found after testing was that the number one thing that makes a difference is the temperature of the water when you lower the eggs into it. Some people recommend putting your eggs in cold water uh, and then bringing that to a boil on the stovetop. That is the way that you're going to get your eggs to stick the most. It's much mm. better to lower the eggs into hot water. Good riddance, ugly eggs. <laughs> so uh, what was something that really surprised you in the lab? One of the big ones is, is pasta. I was always taught that you have to use a very large volume of water for the amount of pasta you're cooking. And there's a couple of reasons given for this. You know, One of them is that uh, more water helps the pasta stick less. Um, and the other one is that with a larger volume of water, when you add the pasta to it, the temperature of that water drops less, and therefore it returns to a boil faster. So you're cooking the pasta faster. But if you actually test it side by side, get yourself a gallon of water boiling in a big pot and a quart of water boiling in a smaller pot, add the same amount of pasta to both pots and watch them, and you'll find that the smaller pot actually returns to a boil faster than the larger pot does. 
So are there any uh, mysteries you haven't solved? I've, I've been trying to do homemade uh, chicken McNugget right now. I, I have a theory that some things are already done perfectly by other people. Oh, I totally agree. And so if you really want a perfect chicken nugget, get in your car and drive 10 minutes away and buy nuggets. <laughs> no, but on the other hand, like I think, you know, recreating fast food at home is just kind of a fun sort of little science experiment. Spoken like a true nerd. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, his entertaining and gigantic book, The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science, is out now. All right. We hope you saved room in your ears, people, because we have more food-centric sounds to serve you, including chats with star chefs Gabrielle Hamilton and Dan Barber, plus a musical side dish courtesy of The Roots Quest Love when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and today we're focusing on the food part of that equation because this is our annual all-food episode. Woo-hoo. In a few minutes, star chef Dan Barber makes us a delicious meal of total garbage, mm-hmm. and Questlove, leader of the band The Roots, spins us a mouth-watering tune. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and it's Gabrielle Hamilton. She is the chef and owner of Prune, for 15 years one of the most celebrated and idiosyncratic restaurants in New York City. Her best-selling memoir, Blood, Bones, and Butter, won a James Beard Award for Best Food Writing. And last year, Rico talked to her about her cookbook, The New Prune. That's right. It contains annotated versions of the recipe she gives her wine cooks. I started by asking Gabrielle about the first one, canned sardines on Triscuit crackers. The main instruction being to avoid arranging the sardines on the plate in a, quote, restauranty way. It's funny because it's not an irony at all. I don't have an ironic bone in my body. I'm yeah. cynical and jaded, yes, in certain <laughs> ways, but um, I'm kind of last of the earnest people. And that recipe, if you want to call it that, open a can of sardines. I lived on sardines through some very starving times. I was in New York City. I was living out of a jar of change. I was 16 years old, and that was 35 cents at the bodega. So it means a lot to me, and now I find it very delicious, and it's the greatest source of protein. So, yeah, it's not a joke. It's not um, an affectation, like PBR, that kind of thing (laughs) that people do. The, The other thing is... I'm trying not to have a restauranty restaurant, so I always or often have to ask the cooks to make the food look normal and not gaspable. I don't want well, the food to go down and you have to sort of stop your conversation for 15 minutes to admire what I've done. I just want the food to look good enough that it's appetizing and appealing and no more. Not intrusive. I First of all, I agree with all of that, and I'm sincere in saying that I really want to eat it right now. After <laughs> You're <having>. earnest, too. <laughs> I'm absolutely earnest about sardines, as anyone who's heard this show knows. But this recipe does call into question the idea of what makes something fine dining. What, in your opinion, is the key? What separates this from, you know, what you would do at home? Well, you know for sure that Prune has no ambition toward fine dining and couldn't possibly be categorized as fine dining. We have wobbly tables and all the coffee cups are chipped. We are excellent dining and delicious dining, Uh but we are not fine dining. But if you dig into that book and if you come to Prune, you know that we also do things that are 37 steps long. And oh, yeah. not everything is just popping open again. <laughs> For sure. Well, this is... But the food at Prune is very personal. And 
it's food that I know very intimately from a lifetime of being up close to it or having eaten it in an originating source. I don't make anything on the menu sort of um, learned in a stainless steel kitchen or Mm -hmm. um, conceived in a dream. (laughs) If I'm roasting lamb, it's because we grew up roasting lamb. If I'm opening a can of sardines because I survived on sardines. The restaurant in the book is kind of, it's you. It's really your personality and the things that you like. To what extent were you surprised at the success of Prune? Does it surprise you that there are so many people that are willing to follow you on that ride? Eventually, that became normal to me. But of course, in the beginning, I was very shocked and surprised when anyone (laughs) walked in the door. And I would always light up with confusion, like, wow, what are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) Did you find anything in common with those people beyond the, the food taste? Well, I think that's actually what happens. I mean, I'm not even sure Prune's really a restaurant. It's really just a litmus test. Of a universe that, do we all want to live in this particular universe? Interesting. It's like a community builder. Yes. In a strange way and a very disparate way, it always amazes me when I look out at the dining room and I see an over 70-year-old couple, highly polished and groomed on their way, you know, to the theater. And sitting next to them is some pierced and tattooed lesbian couple with blue (laughs) hair and body odor. <laughs> what is your food the only thing that unites those two people, do you think? There's some gestalt in there. I have never been able to name it. It's sort of the X factor of restaurant success. You can have the right food, the right lighting, the pretty girl at the door. You can have the good wine list, etc. And you can just tank. But um, mm-hmm. there's that little intangible. I don't know what it is, but we're 15 years old. It's in prune. You mentioned that you've been around for 15 years. And increasingly something I've been thinking about, especially lately in New York City, so many bastions and standbys have been closing. What keeps Prune open? Yeah, 15 years. It's like 244 in restaurant years, I guess. Increasingly, it's probably more. Yeah. Um, We're small and we're consistent. I think if you have looked at the cookbook, it could be said that I'm a little scolding (laughs) in the instructions, that there's a lot of... um, admonishments. I think that's another word that's been used if you look at my comments in the book. But um, inconsistency is, in fact, the surest death knell of a restaurant. I think you can be consistently terrible and stay in business Mm. sooner than you can be inconsistent in your quality. So the whole point of haranguing line cooks is because I need the girl who cooks it on Friday to cook it the same as the guy who cooks it on Tuesday All those recipes are written in a way to keep the product exactly like what we want it, year in, year out. That kind of answers a paradox that I saw in some of these recipes, too. There's, you know, the second recipe in this book is basically radishes with butter and salt. But it is extremely, you say, first of all, that you've seen some of those go out in a way that you don't like the way it looks. Even though it's radishes with butter and salt, that's basically all it is. It's very unfussy food in some ways that is prepared exceedingly fussily. I know. It's only three ingredients, but I want my radish quite crisp with burn, and I want my butter cool and waxy, and I want the salt on there at the end to bring back the kind of flame from the radish that the butter tamped down in a way, sort of tamed. I can tell you, you know, this is why you won a James Beard Award for writing as well. I I would not have ever used the word flame to describe a radish. To me, it's like a cooling disc of refreshment. Oh, you're eating the wrong radishes. (laughs) There you go. should be eating a prune more often. Um, You were known for a long time for helping to popularize bone marrow as a dish. My understanding is one of the reasons that you got into bone marrow in the first place was practical. It's cheap. You could sell it expensively and kind of underwrite 
a cheaper, say, steak on the menu or something like that. It's true. The poor marrow bone, which my butcher used to give to me for free, now is, I don't know, three twenty-five a pound or something like that. This whole nose-to-tail eating fiendishness, this, this trend, is so funny because I think now it's become nose and tail only. And I'm like, whatever happened to the pork chop? What, yeah. the, poor, the poor loin has been left behind. Hey, give me a filet, for God's sake. <laughs> but I guess my question is, what is the next bone marrow? Like, what is the, the cheap, underused ingredient that's also excellent? Well, if you just leaf through the garbage section of the cookbook, the things um, sure. that usually get thrown away, you're going to start to throw away the sardine just to get the skeleton, just to have the spine so you can deep fry it. I mean, I'm not really predicting a new trend. I'm just making a joke. But sometimes the thing that you were to throw away, it becomes the thing you most desire. Gabrielle Hamilton, chef and owner of New York City's Prune. Her cookbook of annotated recipes is called The New Prune. And Rico, at the end there, Gabrielle said she was half-joking about fish bones being the next big thing. You may remember this year I talked to another New York chef who was 100% not joking about that. That's right, Dan Barber. Yes, of Blue Hill Restaurant. Okay. Uh, He's the chef there. And this year he hosted a pop-up restaurant called Waste Ed, where everything on the menu was made from food waste, including, as you'll hear, fish bones. I met with Barber in his kitchen during dinner rush, and I asked him where the idea came from. So the idea for Wasted originated because I started to see that while I'm a farm-to-table advocate, the thinking for farm-to-table might be just a little bit too specific because it allows us to pick individual ingredients instead of supporting the entirety of a food system, which means creating a culture and a demand for the things that we think of as uncoveted or undelicious. The less sexy cuts. The less sexy cuts of meat, stuff that ends up in the dumpster. Things like chickpea water, which every time we dump out, we're dumping out this delicious mousse, that taste of legumes and salt, and fatty and rich, but also delicate and beautiful. Why is this stuff thrown away? I think these foods are thrown away because we don't have a culture for eating them. We eat high on the hog. We eat the most precious stuff, the, the cream of the crop. You know, ultimately, that's not a very sustainable way to eat. But it came about because our country was so productive. It was so fertile, and it produced a lot of food. We were never forced into the kind of negotiations that peasants have been forced into for thousands of years. That created dishes out of supposed waste. So, so we'd eat the cream of the crop. We would not eat the beef tallow of the crop. Can you tell me how that dish came about? That's kind of a clever well, use. buying whole dairy cows, and we have a lot of beef tallow, so... We figured out a way to melt it and put a wick in there, which they used to do, and have a candle. So your candle at your table is beef tallow, and then you pour the beef tallow into a little uh, container, and that's your your butter for your bread. And so what did the dairy cow owners and the people that are throwing out the kohlrabi ends say when you approach them about buying their waste or taking over their waste? It's been weird. I mean, the response has been, like, overwhelmingly excited and positive because it's not their fault. They create waste, yes. We all create waste. Their point is there's no market for this stuff, so the labor and the distribution doesn't pay. So we got to create demand. So that's why this project is here, is to create the culture around these products and around this idea. Not to bemoan the fact that we all waste, or that Americans are particularly wasteful society. I mean, no It's like, okay, so what do you do about that? You know, it lasts about as long as this conversation. You feel bad, and then you try not to, like, throw away your, your leftover dinner. I mean, okay, but, and that's too is sort of important, but it doesn't penetrate the culture in a way that I think chefs and restaurants have the opportunity to. 
and so if you make it delicious, people will start to ask for it. And, and, and it'll bleed into the culture, but it's got to be in a context of hedonism and delight. What, what's the superstar? What's the breakout star for you with this stuff? Because you have 21 food. It's a dumpster dive salad. And we have a dumpster salad right here. Dumpster dive salad with pistachios. And then this is water from chickpeas that we whip. Like a can of chickpeas? A can of chickpeas, drain the water and whip it. All right, so I'm tasting the dumpster salad here. It's kind of like a coleslaw. It has carrot pieces and kohlrabi ends shredded. Oh my goodness. The chickpea foam is tremendous. And the pistachio adds a savory quality to everything. So I guess, you know, you were talking about a lot of chefs, we, you know, they cook with awful, they cook with some sort of waste. But you kind of, it seems like you cast a wider net. So I'm trying to think of some of the things you brought into your kitchen for this event that normally wouldn't be there. Well, a good example is, is skate cartilage, skate bones. That's the leftover uh, bones after filleting a skate. We cut it into sort of the size of potato uh, fries and, and, and fry it. All right, so I'm going to eat this. So this is crunchy, like a French fry. Do you imagine any of these things being part of your restaurant outside of this pop restaurant? All of these things in different ways are a part of my restaurant. It's just I don't call it wasted. So that's the difference. So yes is the, is the answer. Everything here is part of it. I mean, there's some places we've pushed the envelope a little bit, like dog food, you know? That's a recipe from the butcher down the block. And what, what, is, the, what is in that? He serves dog food. But we, we looked at the recipe and where he gets these animals from, the same places we get our animals from. Incredible meat, but it's an offal that can't be served. More of the dairy cow. It's delicious. So what's a uh, thing that didn't work that you kind of maybe thought was going to work out but really should remain waste? Cucumber leaves. I thought we could peel them down and make a beautiful salad of cucumber um, leaves and branches, but it didn't work. So is the, what's in your trash can after an evening here with Wasted? Not a lot. <laughs> Not a lot. It's a beautiful thing. And Rico, I don't know if you caught that, but Dan was basically taking a local butcher's dog food and turning it into meatloaf. What? Yeah. It was, and this was good to eat. It was, from old dairy cows that are normally served to dogs, and it was totally delicious. All right, but I'm lactose intolerant, so is dairy cow meat all right? I think you're looking for excuses. Maybe. All right, and on that note, we conclude this all-food episode of the Dinner Party Download. But don't be sad. You can also keep up with us all week on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Speaking of which, Instagrammers, we need your help to launch a new project. We want to see your dinner party or Thanksgiving table after the party is over. Post your photos of the glorious mess and include the hashtag Dinner Party Aftermath. Can't wait to see those pics. Yes, thank you in advance. Our kitchen staff for this episode includes producer Jackson Musker, associate producer Nina Patak, and associate digital producer Christina Lopez. Jeff Peters engineered. Our executive producer is Larissa Anderson. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. And this week's song comes to us courtesy of Questlove. He leads hip-hop band The Roots. They're, of course, the house band for The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. But he's also a big foodie. When we spoke to him a while back, he first lamented the fact that he was on a diet. Oh, no. And then he told us his favorite food-centric song. Enjoy and bon appetit. One of my favorite hip-hop songs is one of my favorite hip-hop groups. A Tribe Called Quest has a song called Ham and Eggs where they just talk about food, their favorite foods, which, you know, is such a fun thing for hip-hop to do, you know, that rarely happens anymore. Like, you know, I would love to hear a a Drake and Wayne song and Nicki Minaj song about, you know, their favorite peanut butter sandwiches. 
that to me was one of the great uh, hip hop culinary songs. And you can listen to ham and eggs, but you can't eat them anymore. I cannot eat them. A tisket, a tasket, what's a mama's basket? Some veggie links and some fish that stinks. Why, just the other day I went to grandma's house. Smelled like you conjured up a mouse. Eggs was frying, ham was smelling. In ten minutes, she started yelling. Come and get it! And the kittens look good. I said I shouldn't eat it, she said I think you should. But I can't. I'm plagued by vegetarians. No cats and dogs, I'm not a veterinarian. Strictly collard greens and a occasional steak. Those on my plate, asparagus tips look yummy, yummy, yummy. Candy yams inside my tummy. A collage of good eats, some snacks, some nice treats. Apple sauce and some nice red beets. This is what we snacked on when we're questing. No second guessing. I don't eat no Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Can you pass that onion skin, dude? Here you go. It's great with the olive pits. Mm-hmm.